Chapter 17. Side Effects. The opening quote for this chapter is by Thomas Merton. What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery, and without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. Like all new freshmen at Castro Valley High in 1967, I visited the nurse for my mandatory physical exam. She checks my vitals, makes me cough, listens to my heart, and gives me a skin test for tuberculosis by pressing a sharp prong device into my left forearm hard enough to break the skin. After doing this, she tells me to return the next day so she could see if my body has a reaction. When I return the next day and produce my forearm, there is a raised red welt around the indentations made by the device. She tells me I have been exposed to TB and will need medical treatment if I am to return to school. Having never been immunized, taken any kind of drug, nor been to a doctor's office since birth, I was afraid what this might mean. Even though I'd been breastfed, raised on raw milk, organic foods, and had never been sick, the situation scares me because people I don't trust were now telling me something needed to be done if I was to attend school. That something was to find a doctor to conduct a series of tests to determine whether I had contracted TB. After the doctor is selected, my parents take turns driving me to his office to subject my bodies to x-rays, injections of various test substances under the skin of my forearm, cold stethoscopes, and stomach pumps for several months. At the end of this uncomfortable process, the doctor announces that not only am I as healthy as a horse, but that I have a larger-than-normal heart, an extra lobe on one of my lungs, and absolutely no sign of TB. All I have are TB antibodies from an earlier exposure that my immune system had successfully defended against like any healthy immune system should. But he says, given the recent rash of malpractice suits and the cost of insurance, he wants me to take six pills a day for a year so there's no possibility I would contract TB and he could later be sued. For some reason, my parents agreed to this, telling me there was nothing they could do. I must take six horrible tasting pills every day for the next 12 months. In spite of their considerable knowledge of nutrition and the evidence of the vitality of my immune system, they caved when the going got tough. So every day, fearful of what would happen if I didn't take the drug, I do as I am told. Within a month, I get stomach aches, headaches, sore throats, constipation, and begin to feel tired all the time. My scalp becomes so dry and itchy that while leaning over my textbook and scratching my head, enough dead skin falls out so that whole pages become illegible. Such was the immediate effect of taking a drug to cure a condition that did not exist in the first place. I mention this because my older brother and I always enjoyed robust health and never saw any medical practitioner unless he needed a stitch or to set his broken bone. But now I was beset with numerous symptoms while he was free of them. When my skin started to break out with acne, I took stuff to rebuild my intestinal flora, got regular chiropractic adjustments for the headaches, continued to eat well, and went to bed early. But I was always tired. In fact, even through college, I would go to bed by 9.30 p.m. Nothing seemed to help until I learned to meditate. Unlike many households at the time, my parents were very informed about nutrition, supplements, and organic foods. Actually, my grandfather and mother were pioneers in what was to become the holistic health industry. It was due to their extensive knowledge that I knew that the hours of rest before midnight were twice as effective in purifying the body as those after, and being desperate for relief from the ongoing side effects of the drug, I was always the first person to bed in our house. 
In fact, I couldn't stand to be tired because fatigue was actually painful to me. So while my friends were carousing around late at night, I would excuse myself and make my way home to bed. If I didn't, I would pay a heavy price the next day as my body struggled to function. But as a freshman in high school, I did not know my body had been poisoned or that for the next 40 years I would feel bad a lot of the time, which made me grumpy, intense, and often difficult to be around. You can imagine my delight when at the age of 18, suffering from the onslaught of adolescence and worrying about being drafted into the Vietnam War, on top of the side effects of the TB drugs, that I make the connection about the benefits of TM and my fatigue. It's at my first TM lecture that I learned how the nature of both the body and mind is to seek states of least excitation, their natural states of deep rest. TM brings about a state of rest that is two to three times deeper than the deepest point of deep sleep, thereby allowing the body and mind to achieve a profound level of rest, which releases the deep-rooted toxins and stresses which normal sleep cannot reach. Whenever the body and mind receive deep rest, they spontaneously purify. The body releases stress and the mind expands by settling down and becoming increasingly quiet, like the waves of an ocean after a storm. Fast forward to the fall of 2003. I'm still unraveling from James' insight about my sense of spirituality. I have a stack of books to read, papers to write, and an ongoing kundalini process that besets me with purifications, the likes of which I could never have imagined. One moment I'm reading the introduction to Chogram Trumpa's book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, and in the next there is a ringing sound in my ears followed by a wave of nausea. Unable to do anything, I go to my bed to rest, only to find the nausea increasing, along with energy vibrations, aches, and waves of heat pulsing through my body, leaving me bedridden for the next month. Since there is not much I can do from my bed in moments of clarity, I ponder my condition to discover that the thought forms, emotional patterns, and belief systems that make up my personality are nothing more than rehearsed behaviors laid down long ago to create safety in an unsafe world. For the first time, I could clearly see the personality artifacts that performed the role of Gary, that prevented the authentic me from interacting with my world. And they were so layered and nuanced that I never knew they were there, in the same way that a default setting on a computer is soon forgotten once selected, even as it runs silently in the background. But that setting, hidden deep at my machine level, had caused me to relate to all the events of my life in the same manner as when I first selected the program. For this reason, no matter what situation I was in, I was always defending myself against my stepfather, anticipating the consequences of his anger, retaliating against his need to prove me wrong and make him right. Consequently, I was always defending, attacking, and reacting, locked into a set of reactions that were inappropriate to the moment, making it completely impossible for me to respond appropriately. This program kept repeating itself like a form of radar that constantly scanned the environment for evidence to support its existence. When failing to find some, it would create events to validate its premise. Given the entrenched nature of such patterns, it's easy to see why so many have difficulty making changes in their lives. We know we don't like the situations in which we find ourselves, things we have done, or the people we seem to have become. Yet we fail again and again in bringing about real and lasting transformation because we're not working with a set of parameters that we can simply dismiss or disconnect. Many of them are woven together in such a manner that true transformation appears daunting. One of the obstacles to our transformation is the fact that we do not understand that our life is not compartmentalized, even though we think it is. Sure, the situations in which we find ourselves are varied and different, but we are not, for we are the same person all of the time. 
Consequently, as much as we would like to believe we could, we cannot become a different person at different times or in different situations. All we can do is hide behind our persona, like one would wear a mask in the hopes that doing so will have the desired effect on the outside. But doing so does not make it true on the inside. The only thing it proves is the futility of attempting to hide the things about ourselves that we think are inappropriate for the situations in which they arise. This is especially true in the corporate world when we are told it's not personal, it's just business. Therefore, the decision to fire, hire, conspire, and retire is not a personal one. So don't take it personally. Excuse me, but what a load of crap. Of course it's personal because everything in life is. To suggest that simply because we put on a suit, work clothes, or a uniform that we have at our disposal, the resources of an entirely different version of ourselves is not only insane, but dangerous. And this notion that we must behave in a particular manner to be safe not only perpetuates the belief that we are in fact not safe, but more importantly, it inculcates the belief that to be happy, we must become another person. I know this drill firsthand because my entire life had been an endless process of rebelling against what I appeared to be in the face of who I was. As time went on, I learned there was no getting rid of such beliefs. They would never actually go away, just as I would never forget that I once believed myself to be a spiritual person. What would happen, however, is that fully noticing and accepting a belief would halt its incessant operation that had formerly compelled me to react to my world. Usually this happened when I felt extremely stressed and yet unable to make my escape that an unknown pattern would rear its ugly head, revealing the lifetime of thoughts, emotions, conversations, and behaviors that it caused. Like an acid trip or maybe even dying, all the instances of its operation would come crashing to the foreground of my mind, stunning me with its revelation, causing intense self-loathing and sadness for the pain that it caused others, often leaving me with the need to be alone for a long time talk about a way to strain relationships. The good news is that once the pattern was clearly seen operating in every nuance of hand gesture, intonation, phrasing, posturing, wording, breathing, feeling, and selective hearing, it stopped working. It died, dead in its tracks, just like you would expect if you disabled the default setting on a computer. The reason why is that our patterns only work when they're hidden, but once we see them operating everywhere, They no longer solicit reactions, freeing us to choose how we would like to respond. Yet, as this roller coaster of epiphanies burned through my life, it triggered patterns that made any hope of freedom little more than a pipe dream. But every once in a while, when least expected, a pattern would simply go poof. And it was this effect of going poof that allowed me to grasp how the individual patterns our CEO's practice could be transformed for the benefit of the business world. This realization became the basis for the six principles of corporate creation pattern recognition, or what I now call corporate CPR. Number one, beliefs are patterns of relating to the world that are hidden. To create responsibly, we must recognize them before we can be free of their effects. Number two, Companies are the external physiology of the beliefs that are operating in CEOs, which are empowered by the collective of members that make up the organization. Number three, corporate success is possible to the extent that CEOs neutralize or poof patterns that are inconsistent with success and structure those that are. Number four, there is one organizing principle at work in the people, places, and things of the world that is available to each of us on the basis of our present moment. Number five, if we desire to have success for ourselves, our communities, and our businesses, the organizing principle will guide us to our wisdom that is hidden in plain sight. Number six, fear is the practice of the belief 
that we can't be who we are and have what we want.